0: And now, back to Lifeline
1: with Craig Roberts.
2: How many believers today? Maybe, maybe privately you might even admit this for yourself. You can tell people what you believe, you just can't tell them why. We're going to talk a bit about that today as we meet a very special guest, certainly a very familiar voice to KFAX listeners. He's heard weekday mornings at 7.30 a.m. here on KFAX, senior pastor at Parkside Church in Cleveland and Alistair. Great to
3: have you on the program. Thank you, Craig. It's very kind of you, and uh, it's, a, it's a treat always to talk with you. My goodness, 30 years. Uh, <laughs> the Lord
2: has done some amazing things over the course of the last three decades. Could, could you ever have imagined when you came from uh, Scotland with your, your wife and young family all that
3: time ago that, that the Lord would have taken you in this direction? No, I, I honestly couldn't, and uh, it seems in some ways as though it was only yesterday time has gone by so quickly as you say and yet uh these have been great and privileged years and uh, I really wouldn't want to change very much about them at all it's been a peculiar joy to uh, first of all serve this congregation and have them be so long suffering as to put up with me for 3 decades and uh, <laughs> and then the radio program on top of that is a is a is a wonderful opportunity that uh, we certainly are Uh, humbled by and don't take for granted.
2: Well, and we don't take it for granted either, Alistair, because I think uh, many of us um, recognize the importance for a ministry such as yours that in, in the 30 years has moved, I think, consistently and critically so more and deeper into the arena of a christian apologetics of which my goodness if there was ever a day in time when we needed christians to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within this is it
3: yeah i don't think there's any doubt about that and i was listening to your introductory comments and uh, I, I agree with you entirely and uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the fault if there if there is an inadequate preparation on the part of uh, uh, Christian people, uh, a lot of the fault has to lie with those of us who are pastors, because our role is to prepare God's people for works of ministry, and uh, part of the ministry is the ministry of proclamation, and uh, so uh, we don't want to chide ourselves too much, but we take seriously the peculiar challenges that are represented uh in uh, the culture here in America, particularly, and expressly so just in the last few days. Well,
2: and certainly, you know, uh, I think all of us, perhaps begrudgingly, can agree that there have been um, areas lacking in the modern-day American pulpit. But that said, the people in the pews have to take a little bit of responsibility to this, too. And I think about a wonderful focus that you bring, I was just going through the pages of um, the book that you've co-authored with Sinclair Ferguson, Name Above All Names. And I just for the benefit of the audience, let me just quote um, a couple of opening lines here. Uh, Alistair writes, Jesus Christ has been given the name above all names. The names assigned to him begin in Genesis, end in Revelation. Taken together, they express the incomparable character of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Reflecting on them better prepares us to respond to the exhortations of Scripture, to focus our gaze upon Him, and to meditate on how great He is. Then Alistair continues, Being able to think long and lovingly about the Lord Jesus is a dying art. The disciplines required to reflect on him for a prolonged period of time and to be captivated by him have been relegated to a secondary place in contemporary Christian life. Action rather than meditation is the order of the day. Sadly, too often that action is not suffused with the grace and power of Jesus Christ. Boy, if anything could could handily sum up some of what we see in the trends taking place in, in the church in specific and in our society at large, that that certainly
3: summarizes it. Well, yeah, I think it's a, <laughs> I think it sounds so good. I'm pretty sure that must be Sinclair. <laughs> <laughs> but
2: it's right on the mark because we, we don't ponder the word the way we used to. And to reflect on Jesus Christ, to sit and imagine spending hours just pondering about the amazing gift of God's grace that, that God would be so passionate about his love for the creation that had nevertheless offended him so, and yet still he was willing to send his only begotten son to die on our behalf. Such a greater love mankind has never known, and and I think that observation in name above all names is right on the mark that we've, it, we've lost the capacity or the desire or the heartbeat to want to ponder and study on that, and I imagine if we would recapture
3: that ability how the church could turn the world upside down yeah i mean i i think that you know if you take the average person coming to church they they're not asking the question where is jesus they're asking where am i mm. and uh, there's a sort of man-centered orientation to even the study of scripture and even the way in which uh, the bible is taught that sort of reinforces notions that are you know, sort of immediately appealing, but they don't have any long-lasting value. They're not going to stand uh, in, the, in the challenges of, of uh, time when a culture as, as ours turns increasingly secular and uh, the Christian church begins to uh, face the challenge of living as a minority uh, in, in the culture, which has not been uh, part and parcel of the American psyche, at, at least until this point in time.
2: How much of this really pivots on the church, its strength, its understanding of God's Word, its ability to make disciples when we talk about the direction or the condition of, of culture and society at large?
3: Well, you know, church history makes it fairly clear, I think, Craig, that uh, that the collapse of the church has always been internal, you know, it, it has always been able to handle the the challenges of persecution. The blood of the martyrs being the seed of the church. And when the prevailing drift on the outside has been at its most intense, uh, then the people of God have rediscovered who they are, what God expects of them, and they've they've rallied to the challenge. Um, but but the real danger is the the danger of a sort of internal. Uh, erosion and uh, a collapse in confidence, a loss of confidence in the in the relevance and in the truth and in the power of the good news itself. And again, many many people who pay lip service to to Jesus uh, will be uh, really. Uh, struggling to to stand up to the the, the exclusivity of the claims of Jesus—that there is only one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus; that there is only one name by which men and women may be saved, and that is in the name of Jesus. And the the, the drift in culture, in in our um, uh, sort of deconstructed use of language and our understanding of history, is so dominant that. Uh, it, it's absolutely imperative that uh, those who profess the name of Christ uh, really dig in and understand just what it means for them to be in union with Christ and what a man and uh, or a, mo- a woman in Christ really is. If you've just joined our conversation tonight,
2: Pastor Alistair Begg with us on the program. He, of course, is the host of Truth For Life, heard weekday mornings at 7.30 a.m. We're going to take a brief time out. When we come back, more of our conversation, we dig down into uh, the, the baseline importance of what it means to truly be a disciple of Christ, as our conversation with Pastor Alistair Begg continues.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: Back to our conversation. Pastor Alistair Big on the program tonight. More information on the web about the broadcast and ministry at truthforlife.org. That's truthforlife.org. Broadcast weekly mornings at 730, right here on KFAX. You know, we hear these days, Alistair, uh, churches that have huge crowds and folks that will get up in the platforms on uh, the pulpit, rather, and will share uh, platitudes and nice stories and things of this sort. It seems, though, that on an ever-increasing basis, preaching about the blood of Christ, the atonement, preaching about the need to count the cost of what it truly needs to, means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is something
3: that is that seems to be glaringly absent. Well, yes. I, you know, I think um, it's always dangerous to generalize and I know you understand that too um, yeah I think we've gone through a real a, a real period of time in which you know that idea of the way to make sure that we don't offend anybody is to uh, dilute things to the point of uh, pretty well tastelessness and um you know when um, the old uh, Scottish theologian spoke to the Yale divinity students uh, uh, james Stewart in in nineteen fifty two uh, he warned them fifty two which is sixty one years ago about what he referred to as a, a a theologically vague and harmlessly accommodating kind of Christianity which he said was absolutely useless mm. and you know, I, I think we're seeing the evidences of that now. And one of the one of the encouraging things for me as somebody who's now moved into, you know, uh, my 60s is to see how many young men, though, are coming through in uh, various places in the country and who have really fastened on to the idea that uh, if we're going to take seriously what it means that Jesus is Lord— then we have no right to tamper with or to dilute or to try and redefine the claims of Jesus. But we must just state them as they are. And, of course, to fail to do so really uh, sort of strips the gospel of its life-changing power, doesn't it? Well, of course it does. I mean, the, I mean, in, in first century Corinth, Paul knew that uh, you know if he gave the people what he wanted to, to receive, whether it was the Jew or the Greek, then they would receive him with open arms. Uh, But the one thing that uh, uh, they were unprepared for is, um, you know, the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. There certainly seems to be, as we look at society today, uh,
2: Western culture, there still seems to be a a desire and interest in spiritual things. I I think that sense of of man's deep, innate longing uh, to be connected with God is there. We just, on an ever-increasing basis, don't know how to define it, and we head out to Many false sources to try and address it or satisfy it, be it through pagan religion or the occult or whatever the case might be. Um, and, And yet, so we see still a strong hunger, a strong spiritual desire, but it seems as if fewer people are really turning to Christianity, perhaps because we're not sharing the message with the kind of clarity and relevance that is needed to pierce people's hearts, through the power of the Holy
3: Spirit, and, and present a gospel that people can look at and say, wow, there's real power behind this. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really helpful, Craig. I, you know, we have an Australian friend who visits here, you know, every few years, and I remember the last time he was here, he made a comment concerning your sort of American Christianity, and of course, we want to be as guarded with Australians as we should be with Scotsmen, but uh, <laughs> he he you know he said that he 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 sensed a tone in american christianity which was which was a tone of admonition rather than a tone of mission so mm. that we were going to the culture to admonish them for everything that was wrong uh you know in their belief system and in their expressions of their understandings and i think it is an important thing to realize that uh, jesus never ever um and he never deviated from the clarity of his message, and yet the way in which he approached Zacchaeus or the way in which he approached the woman at the well, you know, is is a masterful illustration to us of the way in which uh, we ought to be prepared to to speak to people on the on the troubled seas of life. Have we missed the mark then to a great degree in the
2: sense, Alistair, that I think of the the wave of evangelicalism uh, getting involved in the body politic in a significant fashion, first in the late 1970s and, and certainly in through the decade of the 1980s and into the 90s, not to suggest at all, before listeners flood the phone lines here and I get in trouble, that, that we don't have an obligation as believers to vote and be involved in this business of self-governance. I believe that we do, and yet oftentimes it seemed as if there was a time in which we exchanged our involvement in the body politic for the realization that if we're going to change the world, we have to change hearts. You really can't affect change of heart by making political change. Yes, things and work needs to be done. Certainly the evidence of the um, uh, what's been coming out of Washington, D.C. in the last couple of days proves that.
3: Yet at the end of the day, the real power is the is the changed heart. Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because we do want to make sure that, that each of us are seizing the privileges and responsibilities of living in a democracy like this and making our voice heard and standing up for, uh, you know, moral rectitude and for, for biblical values and so on. But, um, you know, I, I think it's probably too soon to make these determinations, and I'm also fearful of overstepping my bounds here. But if you think back to... Well, I've been here three decades, so I get here right around the time I think that the moral majority and uh, and that whole movement is you know is is coming to the fore and doing what it's done and you know it's gone all the way around. But you know, I think we have to say that it actually, it really hasn't achieved its objectives. Mm. It's been it's it's been unable to to do this. I mean, we we're we're talking now. Uh, the day after the Supreme Court, you know, passes down what is it certainly couldn't be any any anything other than um, a, a testimony to to immorality and to the the the, um, the the very reverse of the things that were angled for and laboured for, and I, I actually am quite excited about it though, Craig. I I'm not despondent. I'm not wringing my hands. I I think that there are certain things that are bad for our country that may well prove to be good for the church. Mm. If we if we recognize that, as we must, that God is sovereign over these things, that he is the one who sets people up and he is the one who brings them down, um, he doesn't do that in a vacuum and therefore our voice must be heard. But we have to recognize too that, you know, our view of the world is is a much larger, vaster conception of what is going on. We're actually affirming the fact that Jesus Christ is not only a resurrected uh, Savior, but he is an ascended king, that he rules over the cosmos, and that the, the providence of God is such that nothing happens except through him and by his will. That's basic biblical Christianity, which, of course, challenges a worldview that is deistic or pantheistic. Uh, which, of course, is you know uh, both both perspectives are prevalent in in our contemporary society, so that really takes us back then
2: to the centrality of his lordship, and maybe time, as you point out, for some introspection of the church as much as it 's easy to become dismayed by these events morally, politically, even economically that 's been occurring in our country and in sort of the the uh, micro and globally in the macro, to understand that for the church, focusing back on teaching and prayer and giving ourselves to evangelism and to worship and giving to the poor and, and certainly discipleship, if we can get back to those key things, then I think God can indeed have us in the position where he can better use us to
3: influence culture and society around us. Yeah, you know, I mean, if you think about, for example, an era like, uh, you know, the 18th century awakening with yes. you've, you all you always have strong, strong preaching. Uh, Dwight L. Moody, you know, apparently didn't have very many sermons, but nobody misunderstood him when he spoke. And he combined, as did Spurgeon in Victorian England, um, a real commitment to the good news, the proclamation of the good news, combined with expressions of good deeds, so that both of them were engaged in in the social um, dimension of their immediate environment, whether it was in Chicago or in London. Both of them were involved with orphanages, and yet they did not for a moment confuse the necessity of people turning to Christ in repentance and faith with uh, the the good and necessary outflow of Christian uh, living that, that cares for the, for those who are least and last and left out.
2: If there could be one singular message— that is central to your heartbeat, the one message that you'd like to get across to every man and woman who has named Jesus as Lord and Savior,
3: what would that be? Wow. Well, I think if I just apply it to myself, I mean, I think to... Fully understand that you know when Paul says one day at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to understand that that he's not talking there about that being an expression of devotion, he's talking about being a, an expression of his identity. That what he's saying there is that this that this Jesus, as the apostles did post Pentecost, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made him both Lord and King, and therefore. I have no freedom to believe anything other than what he teaches me. And what he teaches me is left for me in the scriptures. And I have no freedom to behave in any other way than that for which uh, to which I'm called. And that then, you know, impacts every area of our lives, uh, our vocation, uh, our sexuality, uh, our marriages, uh, our singleness, whatever it might be. And, you know, then, then we have an opportunity to... Uh, to speak to people. And, and often, uh, you know, the, the attractiveness of it uh, ought to be found in the loveliness of Christ, mm. the compassion of Christ, the patience of Christ. And I think so often, if you, if you take, for example, and sometimes the media has branded us in this way and a few crazy people have, have led to it, but, but I think we do have to face the fact that we often come across as a rather disgruntled and angry bunch of people as opposed to a people who say that they have been born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead.
2: Yeah, you're right. It's often interesting if you talk to non-believers um, and get their opinion about Christians, uh, they can give you a long list, a big litany of what it is that we are against. Right. And then when you ask them, can you tell us what Christians are for, there's silence. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and that speaks volumes, certainly.
3: Yeah, it does. I mean, I, 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 you know, if you think about Jesus with the woman at the well, you know, what a, what a conversation started. May I have a drink of water, please? You know, he doesn't, he, he eventually gets to the point, you know, when he asks her to call her husband and and she admits that, you know, she's had a number of husbands and she has a live-in lover. But that's, no, that's not what he starts with. I mean, he's not sitting at the well with a big sign condemning, you know, her uh, her multiple relationships. He he starts by uh, simply engaging her in conversation. Hey, we
2: as the church can learn a lot from that example, that we might be better to engage the culture and society around us for the sake of the gospel by simply beginning with engaging others in conversation and, of course, ultimately understanding what it means to be a disciple, to count the cost. We sure appreciate your time, your faithfulness to the Lord, and the caliber and quality of your uh, teaching ministry. Thanks so much again for the time. There's Pastor Alistair Begg. Again, uh, his broadcast is weekday mornings at 730 here on KFAX. And uh, wow, 30 years of ministry at Parkside Church in uh, Cleveland, and what a blessing it is to have him as part of the ministry here at KFAX. And let me just say this. If Alistair's pulpit ministry has been a blessing to you, would you take a moment today and jot him a note. It's not about puffing people up. But, you know, sometimes it's good to know that you're making a difference. That what you're saying and what you're teaching and your heartbeat and your passion for God and for His Word is impacting lives. And if you would take a moment today to drop him a note, I know that he would certainly be blessed and encouraged by that. You can get more information about the ministry at truthforlife.org. truthforlife.org. And our thanks.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: You heard on the program news the lawmakers here in California are considering changes to some 34 statutes by, quote, redefining the definition of gender to also include a person's gender expression, close quote. Uh, this on the heels of word that a district here in California, school district, um, would allow children, boys and girls, to identify as boys, girls, or undecided. Now, <laughs> you talk about... Uh, Creating confusion amongst kids at a time with anything uh, was needed, we need better clarification, better understanding. Some would argue that what's happened here is instead of emancipating a men to be the kind of men in, uh, that, that God has called them to be, to be the kind of fathers that God has called them to be, the hu- kind of husbands that God has called them to be, instead our modern culture is emasculating them. We take a look at some insights on this topic. Don Otis joins us on the program. Of course, he's a well-known best-selling author, many, many years involved in high adventure ministries, which his dad founded uh, there, broadcasting uh, Christian programming, both radio and television, uh, literally to the totality of the Middle East. Don joins us to talk about his new book, Whisker Rubs, Developing the Masculine Identity. And Don, is always great to have you on the show.
4: Craig, it's always good to be on with you. You've been doing this for a few years, haven't you? Uh, a
2: day or two now. Yeah, I think we're going to turn a corner into about twenty. It'll be twenty-three years this November wow. if they'll tolerate me that long.
4: That's a that's well, wow, that's a long time. And you're a multitasker, I think, because I think you have some technical skills. Yeah. Do, if I remember correctly,
2: one or two. You got it. You got a good memory. Hey, Don, let's talk about this topic. One that I, you know, ought to capture the attention of, of not just guys in the audience, but women too. You know, it's funny, you talk to some of the, the single gals around the office and they say, gee, if men would only be men, boy, how come we just can't find guys these days that understand and appreciate what it means to be a responsible man, an accountable man, a man that loves God with all his heart, mind, soul, lives like it, acts like it, and, uh, and understands what being a man's man is
4: you know i i I mentioned Maureen dowd's book are men necessary uh (laughs) when sexes collide and and peggy drexler's book raising boys without men i think you know during the world war ii generation when many men were were fighting and, and giving their lives on the beaches of uh of france uh nobody was asking are men necessary they were saying thank god for men thank god that they're they're stepping up. Now what we do in popular culture in in the media certainly on sitcoms is we just deride men. We we tear them down and then we expect them to be protectors and providers for us. And I'm thinking you know, you can't have it both ways. You either have to accept the, the, the benefits of a man who's masculine, or you, or you, uh, you continue to tear him down and, and uh, make him into something that God certainly never intended him to be. Uh, you certainly live in an area, and I worked with Exodus International for five years, uh, doing public relations for them when they were there in San Rafael. And this is an organization that that deals with gender issues. it deals with the struggle that many men feel. Um, in our culture. And and we think because of the no-fault divorce laws back in the early 70s, that that's had no impact whatsoever on how men, men identify themselves. I mean, it's had an enormous sociological uh, impact on our culture.
2: Well, so and, and so single often, you
4: parent know. Women, single-parent families where women are the predominant um, raising boys, and they don't know what, What it means to to be masculine, these kids grow up and they're confused.
2: You know, and sadly, Don, the, the so-called feminist movement that, that saw its birth of things like the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s, you know, as much as it was paraded as, as, as creating a, an atmosphere in which women can capture rights and be treated more fairly, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, you know, but instead of becoming the great equalizer, there are some levels where it's ended up uh, literally, at least in my observation, uh, emasculating a lot of men because now all of a sudden, well, we don't have to be responsible. We're not held to be accountable. We don't have to be fathers to our children we don't have to be husbands to our wives if it's uh, you know too inconvenient we'll run out get a divorce or let the television set raise our sons
4: well and and i hate to say this because it's going to come off sounding wrong but the reality is that the the black community has seen this happen and what 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 you find is is a a huge percentage of, of black children who are born Without the benefit of a father, what we're saying is a culture is: Hey, we'll give you we'll give you free government services, and and we'll become the father for you because we realize that um, somebody's got to step to the plate and do it. Instead of saying, "Hey, look, fathers have to become responsible for their own families and and step to the plate and 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 be there for their kids, be there for their wives." I say this in the book that it's that God's mandate for for men, for masculine gender male, is to be protectors and providers. You can't be a protector and be a wimp. You just can't do it. And if you if you emasculate a man, then he's not going to be a very good uh, protector. So <clears throat> that's kind of what we're doing in our culture: is we've taken away. Um, men's ability, uh, certainly within the church as well. Uh, And we look at God, and we look at all of the feminine uh, gender qualities and attributes of God, His love, His mercy, His kindness, His grace, all of which are true about God, but we forget about some of those other, uh, attributes of who God is. His power, his strength, his might, his, his jealousy, his judgment, his righteousness. Those are kind of more masculine qualities and, 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 uh, so what we do is we pick and we choose both, you know, our perspective of God as well as our perspective of, of the way dads ought to be in our culture.
2: And how interesting it is to know that as much as we've seen this trend, you know, recently in in, in years uh, on an increasing basis here, this move toward encouraging men to find, you know, their feminine side, their gentle side, the softer side, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, and in that process, I think they have completely abandoned Some of the more traditional roles of of the guy as the protector, the leader, the provider, the defender of wife and family and all the responsibilities as God designed a man to have. We've completely let these guys, in a sense, sort of off the hook as they're out to explore their feminine side. And in the end, no one is picking up the baton here, are they?
4: And, I, and I'm not against. I'm not against uh, teaching boys to be sensitive. I'm not against men learning to be uh, thoughtful and considerate, and, and not acting like Neanderthal. Certainly, that's not what we're talking about. <clears throat> what we're talking about, I think, is 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 men kind of really stepping up and and being leaders. And I'm not talking about control freaks. But being the leaders that God really has intended them to be, you know, I I think part of the the frustration that I have with what happened with feminism is it was a pendulum swing that probably needed to happen uh, on some level, but it went too far. And so what happened in in the process is that, that many men, and this is especially true of Christian men, is they felt like, hey, you know, we can't complain about this. We just have to suck it up and learn to live with it. And so what they did is they, they just sort of, walked away from their responsibilities or they they went into uh, their own little closets, emotionally speaking, and stopped communicating because they didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to express what they felt because they'd be called wimps and whiners and sissies. And that's not what men want to feel like. So, you know, by sending that pendulum swing all all the way in the other direction, you know, we have become something that I don't think God ever intended And uh, that's part of the way our our culture's gone. Now we're looking at far more – and here's the trend, Craig, that that I'm seeing. Twenty years from now, probably ten years from now, is more realistic. And even you can look at what's happening in the GOP debates last night with Sarah Palin and the new Minnesota governor. And and you can see how women are – are earning on average twenty five percent more degrees uh, bachelor 's degrees than than men are there 's nothing wrong with that I think it 's great but What's going to happen is we're going to see that there's going to be a lot more positions where women are in leadership, CEOs of corporations uh, taking over in the military, taking over in politics and in the government and in, in the judicial system. I'm not, again, I'm not saying that's wrong or that's bad or that the pendulum swing is, has not been necessary on some, on some level, but men are really falling behind right now. And I think a lot of it has to do with with the way that they feel like they've been treated since the early 70s.
2: And let's be clear in making the distinction here, Don. We're not talking about teaching men how to, you know, uh, engage in bathroom humor, humor amongst the boys and, you know, learn how to crush empty aluminum cans on their forehead, things of this sort. It's not teaching men to be the Neanderthals, but rather teaching men to be more responsible, more accountable for their actions and roles and duties and responsibilities as husband, as father, as leader, etc. We'll take a time out. Our conversation with best-selling author Don Otis continues from KFAX.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: Back tonight with best-selling author Don Otis. We're talking about uh, men. We're talking about the need to develop the masculine identity for men. Again, this is not some kind of a crazy goofball over-the-top macho thing. Uh, where guys engage in bathroom humor all day long and, and, uh, you know, crush, uh, aluminum cans on their forehead. Rather, teaching men to be better husbands and better fathers, um, and, and to do so in a godly fashion. Um, In a day and an age when we're seeing, as we mentioned before, Don, so many aspects of our society that instead of of calling men to become accountable and to be responsible for their actions, to be men's men and responsible as such, uh, you know, here we are, you know, we're giving kids an option. You can be boys, you can be girls, you can be undecided. I never thought that that was physically possible as an option for children. But apparently some people in the schools districts here in California have figured all of that out. And meanwhile, with fathers and husbands, lamp in popular culture, look at some of the shows that run on uh, Fox, for example, Sunday Nights. Is it any wonder that guys are getting the, the impression, boys are getting the impression, they don't really need to be accountable for any of their actions to anyone?
4: You know, and, and you, you're hitting a number of really important uh, uh, issues here, but I think the bottom line is that we, we need to embrace the fact that there are differences, and those differences are okay. So it's okay, for example, if a little boy in school is a little rambunctious. Uh, We don't have to give him Ritalin, and 90% of the Ritalin drugs in our public education system go to little boys. That's just just trying to tame the maleness out of them. That's my perspective, or in some cases they're just uh, blowing out because things aren't working for them at home. but I think culturally, you know, I I, I did an interview years ago with Dr. Joseph Nicolosi, who's the guy who uh, coined the term reparative therapy. This is for gays and lesbians who want to come out of a gay or lesbian lifestyle. But he said 100% of the men that he works with uh, have had uh, bad relationships with their dads. We're talking about the responsibility and the roles of fathers in the lives of their children. And in most cases, in his, in, in Nicolosi's perspective, 100% of the time, uh, a father can have uh, uh, the effect of, of keeping his kids from going into a, a, a gay lifestyle. That's just, <clears throat> that's not my opinion. That's just something that, that, that he, he found in, in years' worth of therapeutic work. Um it says that the role of the father is significant. You go into our, our prison systems, and I live in a, in a county where the, uh, Fremont County, Colorado, where the state and the federal supermax prisons are here. There's 14 state and federal penitentiaries and regional penitentiaries in this area. Uh, many of the men that are in these facilities uh, are in there because they haven't had the, the, the the gentle control and love and appreciation that a father brings to the life of his son and i think that's what we're desperately missing and i think we want to believe and i you know and i insane this craig what i'm going to say is going to it's not going to come off well for a lot of people listening but but the reality is god never intended that either uh, a single dad raised uh, a, a daughter, or that a single mom raise a son. There's many single parents out there that are doing the best job they know how to do, and for the most part, uh, they're do, they're doing it uh, as unto the Lord and, and and struggling to find their way and, and understand how to uh, impart masculine concepts to their to their. Uh, you know adolescent sons, but the reality is that 's not the way God intended it to be it 's very difficult to say hey we'll we 'll put them in scouts or we 'll put them in a sports team. Really, that's not, it's not the panacea for solving a lot of the problems that we have in our culture.
2: Well, and clearly we're seeing that because of the delinquency rate, the divorce rate. We're looking at you know skyrocketing numbers of people that are getting caught, first-time offenses. And then once they get into the system, the rate of recidivism is absolutely off the charts. Absolutely. We can't build these prisons fast enough. And then you sit down, typically with most of these offenders, <laughs> first-time or multiple-time-out, start probing into their child. Childhood and find out well, mm-hmm. yeah my mother had I got four different siblings from three different fathers and, That's exactly and right you know there's there was never any father present in the household, and so these kids just learned that you know being a macho guy was going out with a gun and you know uh getting involved in in, in uh, you know the temptation games within gangs and so forth in order to to qualify for gang membership, and that to them is yeah. the only uh, male role modeling, Don. They've ever exposed exposed to.
4: You're, you're exactly right, and, and and you know if it was any other issue within our culture, and we look at the we look at the child abuse rate, we look at the uh, poverty rate, we look at precocious sexual activity rate, we look at failure in the school system, we look at uh, incarceration rates, all of those things are directly related to the lack of having a father in the household. That's an amazing uh, series of statistics. We're ignoring it, and we're ignoring it because we don't want to believe it. We want to believe that, hey, we can do whatever we want. We can define family in any way that we want to define it, and it's okay. In fact, as you said at the beginning of the program, we can define what gender is. I mean, I I looked at Chaz Bono, for example, on a Piers Morgan show a couple of weeks ago, and I thought, are you kidding me? (laughs) I mean, how does this work for you? You know, first you think you're a lesbian, then you're not sure, then you're confused, and now you've got a girlfriend? I mean, seriously, this has gone beyond a point of, of, of making any sense whatsoever in our society, and if we think it has no impact, gender identity confusion is a huge issue. And fathers play a significant role in the lives of their kids in helping them grow
2: up to be healthy, normal adults. And, of course, ironically, any you talk to a single mom, she will always tell you, you know, if if my husband would only have been a father to my children. And and therein lies the challenge. A good look at Whisker Rubs, the new book written by my guest today, Don Notice. Look at Developing the Masculine Identity, the new book, by the way, which is published by Living Inc., available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. And uh, as always, Don, we appreciate the time and the insights.